All right there, fellow trauma nerd. This is one of those episodes where I really, really, really need you to put yourself first. We're talking about, I mean, the, the, the episode title says it all. It's the traumas after the trauma. So we do mention some things in, uh, in particular. We don't go into detail details, but there are definitely some things that are going to um, bring up some stuff for you. can almost guarantee it. So please, please, please put yourself first. Oh, and by the way, this is Justin Sinceri. Licensed marriage and family therapist. This is a discussion that Mercedes and I had originally on an Instagram live. I hope you find it beneficial, but please put yourself first. Okay, so we're talking about the trauma after the trauma. And I think what I'm talking about is not like war or car crashes. I guess it could be, um, but it's really the at home stuff. sexual assault kind of stuff, physical abuse stuff, uh, domestic violence, all, all of that kind of complex PTSD sort of thing. That's kind of what I'm talking about tonight. And the point here is it's never just the trauma, I don't think. I've never worked with someone where they, sur- I don't think I have, where they survived a thing, maybe once, where they survived something and they want to learn how to get unstuck or cope with it or Whatever, you know, I, I don't think I've ever worked with someone who ha- who just has PTSD. I hate to say just has, but like they don't have complex PTSD. They don't have family right. stuff going on. They don't have other socioeconomic factors. Like all, yeah. they don't have a whole bunch of other stuff along with it. Uh, so when I say it's never just the trauma, I'm really referring to my own experience working with uh, people. Mm-hmm. So there's there's that. And when you survive something or many somethings, you're left with all the stuff that kind of reinforces your state. It reinforces the trauma really, or I'll say the state because we, we define trauma as being stuck in a defensive state. It's the stuff that keeps you stuck. And I'm going to go through a few of them. And then I'm going to go into being cut off from safety uh, by the perpetrator and also how people in your life react to it. But we'll talk about just what keeps you stuck in the state or, or not just, but some of the pieces of that. First off, the stuck state we're talking about is flight, fight, shutdown, freeze. Flight and fight are the sympathetic, where you're kind of stuck in that flight, fight energy. Uh, shutdown is the dorsal collapse, sort of depressed sort of energy or lack of energy. And then freeze is the combination of those two. That's what we're talking about. So it's the stuff that keeps you stuck in those states. One of these is the emotions that you go through. So the anxiety, the sadness, the numbness, anger, panic, rage, being overwhelmed, these emotions don't exist just by themselves. These are a reflection or a product of the state that you're in. And what happens is that people, when they feel these things, they avoid it at all costs. They try not to feel anxious or angry. So they do the best they can to avoid these, which keeps them stuck, right? If you can't be curious and sit with how you feel, it kind of stays, it kind of stays there, sticks around for Many, many years, potentially. So one of the things that keeps you stuck is not the emotions. It's it's the fear of the emotions or the discomfort associated with them. Yes, that's one piece. Shame, I think. Shame associated to them. Huge, huge. Thank you for adding that Why am I feeling this way? Why why haven't I gotten over it? That kind of stuff. Well, well, those are the thoughts of it. But the shame exists by itself. Um, the, The feeling of shame. And I'm glad you brought that up. I didn't put that one on there. But shame is huge. Uh, and people avoid that as much as they possibly can. So that keeps them stuck in their defensive state. 
the other piece here is like you like you brought up are the thoughts so self-doubt i think is one kind of or beliefs or judgments about what you're going through that's kind of kind of what you were alluding to there mm-hmm. and of course all of these things are negative um when you survive something and you're stuck in a defensive state your thoughts match your state so we story follow states that's exactly what that means so of course the thoughts that you have are going to be negative just to put a blank you know a blanket statement to it so like if you're in a fight place fight energy your thoughts are going to be blaming uh if you have more of a flight energy um it's going to be more about assigning danger like I feel anxious. I feel there's danger somewhere and it's this person, this person's attacking me out to get me stuff like that. And then the shutdown thoughts are going to be more directed toward yourself. I think, uh, especially like the I'm worthless or why can I do anything right? And all that kind of reinforcing of the shutdown state, but the thoughts are just a reflection of the state. They, they stem from the state. If you change your state state, you change your thoughts, but those thoughts just as they are, reinforce the state which reinforces the trauma if that makes sense and then the third piece i want to talk about before we go into the other how we're cut off from safety is the behavioral adaptations to the stuck state to the emotions to the thoughts things like addiction or ocd uh abuse like becoming abusive like releasing not releasing your anger because i don't think you release it but um using that fight energy on someone else Uh, oversleeping, pushing other people away, like avoiding relationships. All of these are behavioral and more, many, many more. These are behavioral adaptations to being in a stuck state. But these behavioral adaptations have consequences. They they kind of reinforce the shame and the guilt that you have. Uh, It reinforces all the negative thoughts. And so it just kind of like this, I guess it's kind of like that. I'm just realizing it's the CBT. It's emotions, thoughts, and behaviors, yeah, that's CBT. So all those CBT pieces, they uh, that reinforce the state. Do you think this behavioral adaptation piece, I was thinking about this as you were talking, do you think that contributes a lot to the like multi-generational cycle Absolutely. of trauma? Sure. Because I'm thinking of, you know, uh, the one, the original person who's been traumatized, maybe they uh, develop a... a an adaptation of addiction or abuse on against others and then therefore the next generation is traumatized and then that child totally yeah totally that's sad those adaptations absolutely gonna are gonna feed into the next generation and create a whole new could just cycling through that yeah and that's what i mean with the teens i work with that's a lot of what i we work on is recognizing this has been a generational aspect of it but it can it gets to stop with you and that's that can be a lot of pressure but seems like they also kind of welcome that and embrace that you know and it's like i will be the first one to graduate or i will be the first one to be there for my kids in a different way but there's definitely a generational piece of this those are what one two three ways that it reinforces the trauma reinforces the stuck state through emotions or avoiding emotions really which are the adaptations We have a great comment here. It says, I'm a foster parent and I see the generational thing in every kid. I bet foster parents do absolutely see this kind of stuff kind of just through each of the children that comes through their home. I'm sure in in the school district, that's what we see. Yeah. I don't think I've met with a kid who has some sort of mental health disorder just because. Yeah. It's always, always, always 
and not like, just the school district, like but separate. No, no, like, like no. In isolation is what you're saying. Like the mental right. health issue in isolation, it, it always coincides with all this other stuff. I've never worked with maybe once work with someone who simply has, but that was a PTSD thing. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like they were born with some sort of issue. It's like it was someone like else happened. inflicted. Yeah. 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 So the, the next piece I want to talk about here is where... Can I ask a question real quick? Yeah. Just for the people watching and listening later on, we're going to get to some concrete examples in a bit, right? Like what, what we're talking about as far as the trauma after the trauma? Yeah, it's going to get a little bit more heavy. Actually, I think a lot more heavy from from that point. But I do think it's important to recognize that the, those are some pieces here as well. But we're going to build on that. And I think that this next piece here, uh, which is what I'm kind of calling being cut off from safety. So you, someone survives something or multiple somethings and it's not too late. Like they can get help. They can get support. They can get unstuck. They can, they can get like, they can climb the ladder, right? They, they can recover unless they're cut off from safety. And then it becomes a lot more difficult. The being cut off from safety, I can see two paths from it, but this, represents basically like you're losing a safe person, maybe a safe place, but I'm more concerned about the safe person aspect of it. And if you don't have a safe person, safe place, but also a safe person, then there's like, there's no escape. There's no, there's no way to fight back potentially, because if you have a safe person with you, like a parent, they might, hopefully they'll stick up for you. They'll speak up. They will contact authorities. They'll fight back in some way. They'll use their sympathetic energy when they hear about this to go do something about it. They'll fight back in some way or help you escape and get out of the situation. But if you don't have a safe person to turn to, it becomes a lot more difficult to use that, to, to climb up the ladder back into a, a safe place and to get actual safety. There's the whole co-regulation piece there that if you don't have another sa- a safe person who can help you, who can help with co-regulation and then get you back to a calm state. Yeah. And I, w- I would say that's more after the, fact almost because what I'm talking about is actual safety like I need help get me to safety oh, okay yeah that's what yeah. I mean but if you're cut off from safety if you're cut off from a safe person or it could be also I think uh, a co-regulation thing like if I'm surviving something at home but I can go to school and ha- there's a safe teacher there who yeah. maybe doesn't know what's going on but they but they're they're a safe presence that is co-regulation and you are getting some sort of um reprieve respite what's the right word there you're getting a break basically i think sounds good it's that anchor again that we're always talking about it's the anchor to safe and social and even though you go back home to non-safety you at least have that to hold on to it's something it's something yeah it's something so i think that this process of being cut off from safety is very central to complex ptsd where you're constantly in this uh, defensive state without the option or the opportunity to get to actual safety or to get some piece of some sort of co-regulation, some sort of break from the defensive state stuff, right? So I think this is very central to complex PTSD. So the first way we get cut off from safety is by the perpetrator themselves. This is probably the most obvious blatant way where they are threatening, like if you tell someone this is going to happen, I'll kill or I'll harm or whatever, or CPS is going to come get you these threats. Like, yeah. So when they put those threats out there, kids in particular 
believe them. So it cuts them off from their avenues to get to safety. So that's one way by the perpetrator. The other way that I came up with, I came up with, but identified, um, is due to wanting to protect somebody else from harm, like a sibling or a parent. You know what I mean? And, and to me, this I'm thinking about this sexually abusive uh, stepdad, dad, whatever. And the child who's being abused sacrifices themselves in a way. Literally sacrifices to, to preserve their siblings. Yeah. Being cut off. They, they, don't, they don't have the option to go to safety. They're worried about their sibling, right? So they, they're, they're trying to provide safety for someone else. Th- yeah, there you go. Thank so, you. So, yeah. Yeah. So that's two ways that the perpetrator, and there's probably more, but that's two ways so far. The third way that I can identify is living with the abuser. Like you're living with them and you literally cannot get to safety. Plus, you know, that they're threatening you. Plus, you feel like you have to sacrifice yourself for someone else. And you live with them. There's no option. There's no opportunity to get to actual safety. With all, I mean, with all these factors, like it's just not going to happen. I mean, I guess it could, but it's not always that easy at all, right? Well, and the abuser typically will brainwash you in some aspect and and make you think that there's no other way or he or she is the only um the only person who can provide you with safety let's call it protection um and shelter and whatever thing well that's the that's the fourth part here is that they have some level of control over your life and they prevent you from getting to safety because they you're dependent upon them uh, for things like finances, for privacy, for food, like you you don't get these things unless it's from them. Uh, I think it's very true, not just for kids, but also domestic violence situations. I think that also in these situations, there's an element of having to appease the perpetrator to get your needs met. And this could be a full on like that fawn adaptation where you're kind of like yeah. a codependency kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But I don't think it has to go that far. It might just be like, this is the situation I'm stuck in. I really do have to get my needs met by just giving in basically the whole shutdown kind of thing. But maybe not a full-on fawn kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But so there, there's four right there. Four ways from the perpetrator, like kind of stem from the perpetrator, that you're cut off from safety. And if you're cut off from safety, that is the trauma after the trauma. It's a piece of the trauma after the trauma. The other way is the people in your life and how they react when when a, a victim does go to a parent or a relative or a teacher or a therapist or whoever, when they do speak up and they do need help and they do go to get help, it's how they react that cuts them off from safety, from actual safety. So the first way is not believing the victim. And I hear this a lot with the kids I work with, teens I work with. I don't know if you've found that to be true as well. Yeah, a lot, too much, horrifyingly so. Yeah, and, and then the, the, these teens will say that, they'll say like the worst part of it was my mom or my dad or whoever didn't believe yes. me. Yes. That I survived this thing, but the worst part was I wasn't believed. That And so they'll identify that. So if you go to someone who you think is going to protect you or you hope will, and they don't, that's that's, you're being cut off from actual safety which is the trauma is a trauma after the trauma and reinforces the stuck state and really that there's no option there's no avenue for help 
There's no safety. Yes. Actual yeah. and polyvagal. And I think taking it one step further than that, if we're talking again about the trauma after the trauma. So the original trauma happened, say, sexual abuse. I go to my parents and who, you know, my mom or whoever. My mom doesn't believe me. And so now maybe it was uh, like an extended family member who who abused me. And now I'm constantly exposed to that person at family functions because I'm not being protected by my parent or whoever I told and didn't believe me. And so there's another trauma after the trauma is con- continuous exposure to the person who traumatized you originally. That's that's a story that I've heard, unfortunately, like so many times from my clients. It's so, so terrible. No, you're right. And I hear about social media that the person who abused me is on Facebook and my parent keeps interacting with them even though they Ugh. know what that person's yeah. done. <sighs> okay, so not believing the victim. This is not the victim's fault whatsoever. This says obviously has a lot to do, I think, with that person's own stuff. Mm-hmm. It's not the victim's fault whatsoever. The second way for the people in your life that I thought of um, or identified is not being able to act on their belief. So you go to a, you go to someone who you've identified as potentially a, a rescuer or someone who can get you to safety or help out in some way, and they believe you, but they can't do anything about it. They're stuck in the same situation. Not that they. They're not able to act on it. Um, they have their own stuff going on. They're in their own shutdown place, maybe. They're not able to access their sympathetic state to do anything about it. Or they're deeply entrenched in the same abuse, I, th- I would say. And so even though they believe, they can't really do anything about it. Or they don't know how to. Or they don't believe they can. You kind of get the idea of what I'm saying, hopefully. But... um they're in their own defensive place and they're not in a place to use that sympathetic energy to go fight back by either fighting back or by getting help or using that energy to go to the authorities or to use the energy to run away to a safe house. They're in, they're not, they're, they're way too probably down deep in a a shutdown sort of place. So they may not even have enough sympathetic energy to do so. They may be way too deep in there. And I think that what that might look like is minimizing what ha- what's happened. And I think when we minimize, that's the story follows state. I think what's happening is either they're in a shutdown place and the minimization allows them to not use sympathetic energy, to not climb the ladder. So, Or maybe they climb the ladder enough into a fight place to feel some sympathetic energy and it becomes uncomfortable or they don't believe they can do anything about it. So they minimize and minimizing is an avenue to go back into shutdown. Hopefully that makes sense. I'm kind of understanding it as um, another one of those behavioral adaptations that we talked about, like um, drug abuse or addiction or, or physical abuse towards others. Obviously this isn't in the same category as those, but this might be a defensive behavior that they develop as as a means of coping for themselves or as a means of do you know what I mean yeah it's a thought they've taken on to help them I I guess cope with deal with or avoid the pain of what they've been through yeah that makes a lot of sense as best they can and then and then in turn that becomes the trauma after the trauma for somebody else 
Yep, yep. And they're being cut off from actual safety, which is, again, the trauma after the trauma. Uh, and then also, along with minimizing, maybe not along with it, but a, a separate thing could be, or along with it could be keeping it a secret, not reporting it. And keeping it a secret maybe just due to their own shame or fear of embarrassment or, or whatever. But keeping a secret cuts someone off who needs help. If they're going to to, to to an adult and saying, I need help, and that person keeps it a secret, it's, again, the trauma after the trauma. It's, it's cutting them off from an avenue, a possibility, an option of safety. And the last one that I added here, because I've heard it from a... Now that I'm, the polyvagal stuff's in my mind constantly. I, I've been I've heard this a few times now from the teens I work with that they're going through, they're surviving something right in the home, but they have a safe person they can turn to, and usually it's a grandparent. So far, it was just from the people I'm working with, it's a grandparent. But then the grandparent passes away, or gets cut off from the family, the, the abuser might cut them off maybe. But their access to that safe person is cut off in some way. So now it's like the one person I could go to, or they have to change schools, maybe it was a teacher. And the family moves, they have to change school. But the, the idea here is that the person I have or had that is safe is now not a part of my life for whatever reason. And again... And this from the kids I've worked with, they're telling me like the stuff I went through was awful, but what really hurt me was I lost, you know, my a grandparent. Like that was the what really killed me, you know. Like that's what that's when life changed. Um and it, it is interesting is or like it or not the stuff that I went through, but it was that court appointment. That's when life changed. Like there was a, a time or a place or something happened where I'm cut off from Safe people, people I, safe that I'm answer. actually connected with, yeah. Yeah. So to me, the trauma after the trauma really boils down to there's the, the safety is gone. The, the the avenue for safety is taken away in some way, is severed by the perpetrator in some way, or the person you go to doesn't help in the way that you needed it, um, or the one safe person you have in your life is is gone for some reason. I hope that was helpful for you. I hope you benefited from from that. I know it's uh, heavy, complex stuff. Um, so hopefully you were able to benefit from that. If you are dying to have even more Polyvagal podcast content, we do have members content, members audio content on justinlmft.com slash members. I'll put a link in the description down below. Um, but yeah, it's five bucks a month for a lot, a lot more polyvagal podcast content that's not available anywhere else. Thank you so much for listening.